Chapter 6 Double Down Only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. T.S. Eliot So how did a hard-partying snowboard bum become a successful businessman? By making partying and snowboarding a big part of his business, actually. That way, I was always having fun. But it wasn't as simple as it sounds. Independent Arts was doing great for a while, and I rode that money train, sure that I'd continue to chug up the mountain of success for years to come. But new to the whole business thing, I didn't factor in the possibility of derailment. So it came as quite a blow when I lost my one and only tattoo artist. This sucked, because tattooing was the shop's main attraction, what my brand had revolved around, and what provided my business with its most consistent source of income. I needed to find another tattoo artist, Stat. But in a town of only 2,000 year-round residents, tattoo artists were hard to come by. In the meantime, I modified the name of the shop to Independent Arts Exotic Piercing and Jewelry and kept the place running. Since I continued to pull in a small profit and support my snowboarding lifestyle, I was still pretty happy to be a self-made man. I even had a new girlfriend, more on her later. But I wasn't quite satisfied. I had discovered what it felt like to have a booming business, and I not only wanted to experience that again, I wanted to reach even higher levels of success. But I didn't see how that was going to happen without a tattoo artist. Then came Sierra. Enter Sierra. I was a professional snowboarder and a freelance tattoo artist. I wasn't in town long before, wherever I went, whenever people met me, they'd say, Have you met Chris? You should meet Chris. Well, he went by the nickname Gumby back then. Gumby, Gumby, Gumby. That's all I heard. Then there he was, at the bar that had become my favorite hangout. I introduced myself, told him I was a tattoo artist, and that I'd love to drop by his shop. He said, sure, come on by. But the way he said it felt more like he was blowing me off than that he was really interested. Still, I went over the next day anyway, and I really dug the place. I told Chris I'd love to work there, and he said, cool man, let's get started. And just like that, a business partnership was born. We weren't business partners at first. In the beginning, I just worked for Chris as an employee. And over time, I observed how he ran the place and grew to respect his work ethic. He amazed me, really, because we both snowboarded all day and partied all night. But every morning, there he was, vacuuming and mopping the floors of the shop, making sure the pictures on the wall were all hanging straight and that all the jewelry in the front was neatly presented. He kept the place looking clean and professional at all times. It wasn't what you'd typically expect to see in a tattoo parlor, or what I'd expected from a partying snowboard bum. My respect for Chris grew all the more as he took me around town and introduced me to people. He seemed to know everyone. And wherever we went, people took care of us, giving us free food and drinks. It was like Chris was the mayor or something. He was definitely the most popular man in town, and I had the feeling we were going to get along just fine. Double Down LLC Sierra turned out to be so good that we could charge a lot more for tattoos. His presence and ability also brought an increase in foot traffic, and he quickly became an invaluable asset to the shop. Thanks to him, I was raking in the profits again and making more money than ever. So it made sense to have him buy into the business and become partners with me. We split it 50-50 and called our LLC Double Down Enterprises. The term double down, for those of you who don't know, comes from gambling, blackjack to be precise. It's when you double your bet in exchange for one more card. It's a risky move that can have a big payoff, an instant win. It also means to become more resolute or tenacious in taking a position or stand in something. The name was perfect for us because that's exactly what we would do when we saw the chance to double our business. 
the snowboard store next door to the tattoo shop had moved to a different location, leaving empty real estate just sitting there. It got me thinking, what if we opened another store there? And if we did, what kind of store could it be? Sierra and I got a couple of notebooks, met in my apartment, and threw our asses in chairs and beers on the table as we brainstormed. We thought inside the box, outside the box, underneath, above, and all around the box. We listed the skills and experiences that we each possessed. We asked one another and ourselves what sort of stores we'd most like to see in the area. Again, what was missing? What was something Breckenridge hadn't yet seen? And maybe most important of all, what sort of hustle would we enjoy? Since Sierra had experience working in retail, we decided that we would open a clothing store. But we didn't know exactly what sort of clothing we'd sell until we had a vision. What happens in Vegas? For years, I'd had a fascination with the whole idea of Las Vegas culture and its party vibe. The drinking, the gambling, the hot women, the loads of cash. It all seemed an ideal way to live. And since the idea of even opening another store was quite a gamble anyway, we figured, why not make Vegas the theme of the store? Especially when all the other stores just sold ski and outdoor apparel. We'd stand out, I figured. Big time. We called the store Jimmy Vegas, high rollin' fashion, and went the whole nine yards with the Vegas theme. Even though what we really sold was flashy street and club wear, we set up the store like a little casino. Display tables were made to look like roulette, blackjack, and craps tables, and customers were even given chips with their purchases to gamble as store credit in the future. And believe it or not, we trained our cashiers in blackjack and even taught them to, you guessed it, double down. We thought big. For instance, Sierra spent hours, 200 by his own estimation, painting a huge mural of the Las Vegas skyline on the back wall of the store. And then, when we finally opened, we threw a bash for the ages. It was more like a town party than the grand opening of a store, but it worked really well and we sold a lot of stuff. We did so well, in fact, that we had to pick up two more tattoo artists. We sold merch at the clothing store too. We had it rigged so that the buzzer for each shop could be heard at either location. That way, if an employee was in one shop but heard someone buzzing the door of the other, they could easily go over and take care of the customer. Sometimes a customer had to browse one shop before being seen at the one they intended to go to, but they never minded because in the end, they were basically the same clientele and usually did their shopping at both places anyway. After a while though, the locals in town had all bought what they wanted from the store and the tourist trade, which lasted only about half of the year, couldn't really pull in the numbers we wanted. Sierra and I then found ourselves needing to move products and having to figure out how to do it. The Jimmy Vegas School of Marketing we started buying themed merch and throwing parties to go with them. We had an Exotica ball one month, an S&M ball the next, and a full-blown rave the next. We'd sell tickets to the events, as well as stocking and selling the most appropriate outfits that people could or should wear to each event. We created reasons for people to come in to buy merch, and it worked. I also started throwing casino nights at my place. I was nothing if not always on brand. I'd have 10 to 20 people over. Friends of mine helped out. Some as dealers, one as a doorman, the other even worked as a cocktail waitress. It was hilarious. We served free drinks and they played all night. Our mantra was, keep them drinking, we'll get the money back. And we did. In the end, the house always wins. The house take was a nice little bonus, but the times we had at Gumby's Casino will live on in infamy. Plus, our shit was legit as hell. We used to get all our casino equipment and paraphernalia, as well as all the clothes for the store from the real Las Vegas itself. Sierra and I would fly to the fashion trade shows twice a year and choose the flashiest stuff we could find. It was all stuff that we thought looked cool. 
but since we were new to the business, we made some big mistakes. The things that go wrong often make the best memories. Gretchen Rubin First of all, Breckenridge is a ski town. That means a town of sweaters, coats, hats, and sportswear. Meanwhile, we were buying halter tops and booty shorts, things we'd like to see the women wearing to show off their assets, not thinking how they'd actually all be freezing their assets off. It was only after some women complained to us about it that we even realized there might be a problem. Then there was the fact that we were buying the clothes in super small sizes, like two and three. As one woman asked us once, don't you have any clothes for normal-sized people? All you have are stripper sizes. Other mistakes we made included the mural that Sierra painted. Oh, not the actual art itself, he did a great job. The idea was a good one, and I think it really worked. But looking back, it's obvious now that it would have been smarter to have hired someone else to do it, or to have posters printed and hung on the wall, or to have found some other alternative to Sierra taking so many hours to finish it when his time could have been put to better use, working with me on planning our grand opening. And the biggest mistake of all was the one we made in our first year. We didn't write off our trips to Las Vegas as business expenses on our tax returns. Talk about a fuck up. Yes, we indulged in drinking, partying, and gambling on those trips as well as doing business, but so did every other professional clothing merchant who went to those Las Vegas trade shows. That was basically the point of having those events hosted in Las Vegas in the first place. And Sierra and I always came back from those trips with inventory for our store and massive hangovers, so they were legit business expenses, just very enjoyable ones. And again, very much on brand. But we didn't realize this mistake until tax time when it came to bite us on the ass. We had proudly completed our first year of business, and while we didn't have as sizable a profit as we wanted, we were proud of ourselves. That is, until we had to pay out a big chunk of those profits to the government in taxes. We didn't make the same mistake or hire the same accountant the next year. A professional accountant showed us the ropes the second time around and really helped us to understand how it all worked. He even helped us to recoup most of our money from the previous year. It was a learning curve, but we learned a lot. Riding High I had become a big fish in a very small pond. I had a ton of friends and the respect of everyone as one of the few business owners in town. I reveled in being an alpha dog and was always looking for ways to spread that joy around so that others, not to mention my bank account, could benefit from it as well. One way I did this was by throwing barbecues on the street between the two shops. They were pretty epic if I do say so myself. There was tons of food on hand and drinks were free-flowing, all provided by the shops. There was even a kiddie pool. The events paid for themselves, while the tattoos paid for them, because we always did great business on barbecue days, and they helped create brand awareness. Another way we combined generating business with building up the community was with the Jimmy Vegas High Rollin' Bowling League. You read that right. We started a bowling league and had custom-made bowling shirts that came in a number of styles, all of which we sold at the shop. They could even be personalized, custom-embroidered with the name of your choice. We sold 64 of them, a pretty big league in such a small town. And we made the most of them by shutting down the bowling alley on Sunday nights so that the league could get together and have big-ass bowling parties. Every one of the events we ever had, be they balls, casino nights, barbecues, or bowling nights, sold out. I was riding high on life, so I guess it was inevitable that I would come in for a crash landing. It was a warm spring day in 1999. The only resort open this late in May is Arapahoe Basin, the extreme skiers and riders playground. With an elevation of over 13,000 feet, A-Basin as it's called, is known for its steep terrain and long seasons. And now, unfortunately, it was the last place our beloved Mikey was seen alive. 
I was out tearing it up with a few friends as usual when we all decided to take the giant kicker directly under the main chairlift. It was very much a Hollywood jump, which means of course that you go as big as possible to show off to those watching from above. The partly cloudy sky created what we call flat light conditions on the snow, so visibility was not ideal for big air, or for you if you plan on seeing farther than your arm. I carried a little more speed into the jump than I had planned and went big. I don't know how big to be exact, but it felt huge, and I was hauling ass. I stuck the landing in wet slush and found myself doing 35 plus miles per hour directly against the grain of the deep ruts of an incoming traverse, like driving your car across the tops of 1,000 consecutive speed bumps at 100 miles per hour, blindfolded. I couldn't stop, I couldn't turn, and I couldn't see. I could only watch helplessly for the final three seconds as the giant steel lift tower loomed before me, growing larger and larger, closer and closer. I braced for impact. What about you? Are you an entrepreneur who currently has a business that's doing okay, but would like to see it doing great instead? What are the ways that you can double down to make this happen? I suggest taking out your notebook, going over the chapter you just read, and using it as a guide or checklist of ways you can help to make your business explode, as mine did. Let me take you through it. 1. I hired an excellent employee. You have to spend money to make money. It's an old adage for a reason. So is, you get what you pay for. If you want your business to not just do well, but go big, hire good people and pay them well. This is not the place to be cheap or cut corners. A lot of problems can be avoided or corrected if you have the right, intelligent, and capable people in place. In a nutshell, consider hiring quality help. Write down the pros and cons to having employees, depending on how ready you are to increase in size, as well as the possibility of replacing employees you might already have if they are not the asset to your business that they should be. Be sure to hire the best quality staff so you can find and pay them what they are worth. 2. Consider a partnership. Is there someone you can partner with? Is there someone who shares your vision and who is willing to put in the hard work of growing a business? Some of the biggest businesses started off as business partnerships. The list is long. William Proctor and James Gamble, Wells Fargo, Henry Wells and William G. Fargo, Hewlett Packard, Bill Hewlett and David Packard, Ben and Jerry's, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, Birchbox, Katia Beauchamp and Haley Barna, SoulCycle, Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice, Own Network, Oprah Winfrey and Gail King, Apple Inc., Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, not to mention Microsoft, Google, Intel, etc. The list literally goes on and on. And let's not forget that Mark Zuckerberg would have been nowhere without Sheryl Sandberg's taking Facebook to the stratosphere. I personally have found the partnership model to be the most lucrative and rewarding for me. It may not be for you, but I invite you to give it some serious consideration. Make a list of potential people you can reach out to who you feel have the experience, interest, and ability to build a company or perhaps even an empire with. 3. Make sure that the business you build fills a need or offers something new. Can you write a tagline or description of your business in one sentence that explains who you are and what you offer? For me, our brand name said it all. Jimmy Vegas, High Roland Fashion. In our case, there were no tattoo parlors in Breckenridge, yet both the residents and tourists in the area were of the Snowbum culture, a culture that is very tattoo friendly. By providing a service and product that was in demand and having the work itself done by a skilled artist, our shop was always busy. By selling complimentary products, jewelry for piercings and cool clothes that were also unavailable anywhere else in the area, 
Remember, all the other stores sold skis and sweaters and coats, etc. Our two stores supported one another. We ended up carving out a big presence in a small town and even enhanced its identity through our brand. In a nutshell, finding out what makes you unique helps you define your brand and increases your chances of success. 4. Can you create events that will help publicize your brand or products? Sierra and I threw theme parties in town and created a demand for products we already had. We always did great sales as a result. With today's internet, it can be even easier if you play your cards right. Musicians hold Zoom concerts. Galleries run art competitions. Just as they had to brainstorm money-making alternatives, you can too. Jaylee Beauty sells her products live online on Facebook like a mini QVC. She lets her followers and customers know when she will next be having a sale and invites them to tune in like an event. There are many ways to grow patronage by extending yourself and thinking about how you can enhance the quality of your customers' lives. Use this time to brainstorm ways you can do this yourself. The ideas you come up with that excite you the most are the ones you should follow through with. 5. Finally, consult professional advisors. If you know a good lawyer, accountant, or tax pro, use their services when it's important, especially in a legal sense, to do so. They will save you time, money, and pain in the long run. It's best to ask around before you are desperately in need of help. Collect the names and contact information of reliable consultants from friends or business contacts that you respect so that you have them when you need them. My big dream was to have a child and start a family. An interview with Aaron, part one. Mom, wife, business owner, coach, activist for women's empowerment. Sometimes, the only way to get what you want is to go after it at full throttle. Erin knew this. It was the way she had always lived her life. It had obviously worked, too, because when we find her in this story, she's living a nearly picture-perfect life. She's got a happy marriage, a successful career, even a million-dollar mansion. The only thing missing from the picture inside the frame is the thing she wanted most in the world. A baby. So, she did what any intelligent, self-respecting go-getter would do. She made it the next goal she wanted to cross off her list and made sure she did all she possibly could to make it happen. Only things didn't quite go as planned. Hey, Aaron, please share with our readers your dream of having a baby and what you did to make your dream into a reality. Yes, so my big dream was to have a child and build my family. When my husband and I got married in 2018, we wanted to start our family pretty much right off the bat. As having children of our own was not in the cards for us, we started seeking out fertility treatments. But when we realized that wasn't the way for us to go either, we decided to look into adoption. In early 2020, we located an adoption facilitator, signed the contract, and started the process of building our family through domestic infant adoption. It was a lot of work, but we did it all. Home study, background checks, fingerprints, everything. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of paperwork. But we knew it would all be worth it since they were using all of that information to build our profile to send out to expectant mothers who were looking to choose a family for their unborn child. Sounds like you did everything right. So what happened next? We received our profile book back from the company and I instantly put it online and on social media because you never really know with adoption where your child can come from. A few days later, we received a direct message on Instagram from an expectant father letting me know that they found us on Instagram and that they liked our profile and they wanted to meet us. That quickly? Yes, it sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Maybe there's a reason for that. We sent messages back and forth for a while, but nothing really happened to move the adoption forward. 
At around the same time, my husband and I continued working with the agency and getting our home study done. About a month later, I got a direct message from the expectant mother. It definitely caught me off guard. But when we started talking on the phone, we each liked what we heard from the other, and soon afterward we met with her and her husband, and the infant son they already had, at a park by her home. That meeting went really, really well. My husband and I felt pretty good about it. We just knew we would be officially matched with the family, and we were. This was back in August of 2020. Things began moving forward. We were getting agencies involved and social workers and began extending financial support to the expectant mother as well. Then the woman and I began building a relationship. I went to all of the doctor's appointments with her too. It was amazing. We really bonded. I felt almost as though I was going through the pregnancy with her. Sounds great. So what went wrong? Even though everything was going really, really well, there started to be a few red flags with some of the things that she was saying to us. But my husband and I just kind of brushed them aside because this was our first experience with adoption and we were just so excited. In October, I read on one of the woman's social media pages that she was starting a YouTube channel to document her pregnancy. I thought that was very, very strange, especially since there was no mention of adoption or anything. I reached out to our social worker about it and she said, okay, be wary. So, even the social worker thought things sounded fishy? Yes, she warned me. And since I was still feeling that something wasn't right, I visited the expectant mother's Facebook page and saw that she was sharing all of the ultrasound photos, including those 3D40 ones that we took her to and paid for out of pocket. I knew at that moment that she did not intend to place the child with us. I called the social worker, told her what I'd discovered, and said, I don't know if she's had a change of heart or if she's been scamming us all along, but we can't go forward with this match. That was back in October, about two days before my 35th birthday, so I was absolutely wrecked. Can you elaborate on some more of the emotions you felt at the time of the failed match? Oh god, it was awful. I don't wish that feeling on anybody. It actually felt like a death. I knew that in adoption, there are a lot of things that can happen. Failed matches, failed placements, changes of heart. And of course, I would never fault anybody for wanting to parent their child, but how it all went down was just really gut-wrenching for me like someone had punched me in the stomach, especially when I first saw that post. It was a feeling of absolute betrayal because I had gotten to know the woman on a very personal level and had considered her a friend. I mean, I loved her so much for what she was doing for our family, so when it all fell through, it led into a downward spiral of depression that I tried to hide from my husband and mother-in-law. I mean, for the first couple of days, I couldn't even get out of bed. And then when I did manage to force myself to get up in the mornings, I would sit at the computer and stare at the screen, unable to work. I just felt so lost and empty, like I was broken and no one could fix it. It was awful. This lasted for about six weeks. How did you manage to get out of that deep funk? Well, it basically took a come to Jesus moment from my husband. And this is where the universe works in amazing, beautiful and mysterious ways. My husband had basically seen enough, not that he wasn't feeling for me and didn't want to help me, that couldn't be further from the truth, but he finally had to say some things that were extremely uncomfortable to hear. And I needed to hear them, because the depression from this failed match was really taking a toll on our marriage. I didn't want to let this woman dictate my happiness, or how I feel for what I don't have, and I really wanted to focus on what I do have. And once I realized that it was affecting my husband in such a way that he was feeling disconnected, I snapped out of it. It was like I hit a wall, and I said, you know what? Come tomorrow, I'm not letting this girl hold my emotions anymore. It happened. 
I don't know why it happened, but maybe it's a learning lesson and we're moving on. We're moving forward. I'm going to be positive. I'm going to look toward the future and whatever is going to happen is meant to happen and it's all in God's plan. How are you able to move on? My husband sat me down and we had a heart to heart about not giving up and looking forward in hope. He believed that we would get the child that was meant for us and asked me to believe it too. I promised him I would push forward and think more positively about not just making another match, but the match that was right for us. Then, the very next day, the phone rang. To be continued. As I said at the beginning of this interview, oftentimes going full throttle will get you to your goal. Other times, it can mean you are going so fast that you miss what's flashing past you. Like those little red flags that started flapping around Erin the more time she spent with the expectant mother of the child she hoped to adopt. Erin didn't actually miss the flags as much as she refused to look too carefully at them for fear that they would tell her that the adoption process was going to fall through. But her gut knew the truth. Her heart and mind just weren't ready to accept the message it was sending them. Where we last left my story, I too had been getting messages from my gut. Messages like, it's time to move away and move on but I wasn't listening to them either. Instead, I was barreling down the mountain at top speed, unable to stop myself from the unavoidable collision with a steel lift tower and almost certain instant death.